Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. If you guys have been listening, you've heard Sarah. She's been on many times. Um, Most notably and and most, I think, impactful for me was our first session, our first interview, uh, almost three years ago now, called something like, What Are Spiritual Technologies? Um, And since then, I have not wavered in my love for that language of yours. Uh, You coined that term? I don't think I coined it. I think it was in the air around the time that I first started using it. Uh, Wes Wildman and Kate Stockley wrote a book around the same time I started using it called Spirit Tech. But Spirit Tech. I think I may have been the first person in the theology world to start using it. I love it. I love that. I do need to give a little disclaimer here because, um, well, first of all, I decided that the very first session should be about drugs, which is, I don't know, maybe that's the old band member in me trying to be edgy. Um, but if we are, since we are going to talk about drugs, mostly about psychedelics and the current research and ways that that can help us think about faith and spiritual experience, there is a difference. There's some disclaimers here between recreational use and the type of use that we're talking about now. Um, we don't know a lot about what psychedelics do to people's brains, especially we don't know hardly anything about young people's brains. We do know that cannabis, for instance, is incredibly dangerous for young people. 
uh, before roughly the age of 25. This panel is not um, advice to go use drugs. <laughs> uh, I have personally, also, I, I feel like in an age where there are one million white dudes who are suddenly interested in MDMA and psilocybin, I should say this. I've never had a psychedelic drug experience. This is not a thinly veiled, research-tinged uh, version of me just saying that I like drugs. That's not what it is. I'm genuinely curious about this topic, and I think, as you will hear, and as I know Sarah believes, um, using that spiritual technology language, recognizing is it at such, opens up this vista of all kinds of stuff that we do to facilitate our experiences uh, with transcendence. So... That's kind of the basics. Um, do you want to add anything to the disclaimer? You're really boring, Dan. I know. We're going we're to get there. We're talking about drugs. It's not going to be boring. Okay. First, can you define spiritual technologies? Yeah, I took a very broad view of what spiritual technologies are. Uh, I consider spiritual technologies to be anything that we do with our bodies, and I would, I would include our minds in that, that we use or experience um, as drawing us closer or bringing us closer to some sort of transcendent reality, deeper spiritual meaning, a connection with God, ultimate reality, spiritually intense relationships with other people. Um, so that would include things like psychedelics, but it's much, much broader than that. And usually I think of spiritual technologies as having an intentionality in them, not always by the person like designing the experience, but by someone, Right. So, for example, if you go to like a mega church uh, worship service, there are a lot of spiritual te technologies that are involved in that. Those might not have been designed by the people in the pews, but they were designed by somebody. So we're not always like self-conscious and self-aware about actively, intentionally uh, constructing spiritual technologies, but they are there. Um, and so that usually there's some degree of intentionality. Like the goal is to enhance or further uh, your spiritual development or a sense of oneness with something greater than oneself. And that looks different with different theological framing and conceptual packaging, uh, depending on your context. So what I always first think of is the difference, like if you've been to Europe at all and you walk into a Catholic cathedral in a major city and contrast that with like uh, a spare Protestant church, this church is a pretty good example of it. Um, Protestants tend to not want to be sort of distracted by a lot of visual stimuli. We tend to be more worried about um, idol visual idolatry of some sort. Whereas you go into a cathedral in Salzburg or Madrid or anywhere and you are just gobsmacked. The moment you walk in, the building is telling you a hundred things mm -hmm. to feel, to think, to focus on. Those are spiritual technologies. Yeah, and also churches that are built like this one also have spiritual te technologies. It might not be icons on the walls and the smells and the bells of incense, uh, but there will be a worship leader up here with a guitar playing very certain sorts of music. There will be a liturgy, even if they won't call it that, there will be a liturgy to the programming and the service. There will be a structure that people know to expect. They will look forward to some parts and dread other parts, but there will be a structure, an internal logic to what's going on here, and that is a spiritual technology as well. I'm going to talk about this later on our um, parenting panel, but I took Soren to our old church for the first time that I have been there in four years uh, last Sunday. And we did, the church did Be Thou My Vision, and the second to last stanza was a cappella. And I was like, yep. 
I was both simultaneously enjoying it, almost tearing up, and I was thinking, Sarah would love this as an example of a spiritual technology. The acapella move? (laughs) Yeah, spiritual technology. Yeah, third verse acapella. One of the OGs. Classic. Okay. Okay, so... We, uh, those of us who have been paying attention to this stuff know that there is a huge spate of new psychedelic research uh, led largely by Johns Hopkins University um, and that there was uh, a many decades gap because of sort of governmental red tape mm-hmm. around that. And there's a whole lot being studied now about these drugs. There's therapeutic stuff, which we'll probably talk about. There's all kinds of stuff. But that's not the only landscape of spiritual technology research. So can you give us sort of a wider view? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know on, uh, so obviously on your podcast and trips and others, I often talk about psychedelics uh, as a spiritual technology because in a lot of ways, it's probably the most interesting research area at the moment. It's also the most intense and dramatic sort of form of spiritual technologies that uh, kind of the larger research community is examining right now, but it's certainly not the only dimension of this research, right? So I kind of think of uh, the spiritual technology research landscape in like four buckets. First, you have research on the stuff, like what are the actual technologies that we're talking about? So you hear, yeah, you would have psychedelics research, but you also have research on things like sensory deprivation and body modification, research on community. I think Tony, Tony, Tony Jones is here somewhere, right? And yeah, there he is. Like research on community, like what makes spiritual communities stick? What makes them lose their power? What makes them get their power? Um, research on um, music and physical posture and worship services and uh food questions. And um, I've actually been thinking uh, very broadly recently about the ways that the most mundane things in our lives can be the most powerful spiritual technologies. So sleep, sleep science is, I think, a huge part of uh, thinking about our spiritual development and our spiritual wholeness. Um, Also medications. So I was telling Dan this earlier, like six months ago, I was diagnosed with ADHD as like a woman in my 30s, like who does that? But um, uh, everybody on TikTok. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the nineties. Twenty percent of TikTok is currently diagnosing themselves with ADHD. No, no, if no. My, if my clients are to be believed, yeah. But um, I mean, I grew up in the nineties when like little white girls did not get diagnosed with ADHD. That's true. Yeah. Um, and like I went on medication, and I was like, oh my god, this is like life changing. Like all of a sudden, I was able to be present to my experiences in the world and relationships in a way I never had been before. It's like marvelous. It's a miracle what modern pharmaceuticals can do for you if they're appropriately prescribed and managed. Um, Yeah, so like I think like paying attention to the small, relatively boring things is is as or more important than the more dramatic psychedelics things. So I always want to be clear about that. So that's a whole other area of research, just sort of like human flourishing research. Um, Yeah, and then research around um, a lot of things that are happening in actual church services. So we've talked a bit about the Asbury revival, which we could come back to if you want. Um, Fascinating display of spiritual technologies that work there. All right, so that's like the first bucket. First bucket is, uh, I'll just go through these really quickly. That and we can come back to bucket. it. That was the first bucket. Yeah, first bucket, sorry. First bucket is like research on the actual stuff. active research field. <laughs> I know. Actual stuff, right? Um, like kind of the actual nuts and bolts of what your technology is that you're talking about. 
Um, second bucket is the psychology around it. So there is uh, a wonderful psychology of religion research field out there. Um, people like Julie Exline uh, are talking about spiritual struggle, kind of teasing apart the different forms of spiritual struggle, identifying those that are more easily overcome, identifying the areas of spiritual struggle that actually can be extremely detrimental to your long-term spiritual flourishing. That, I think, is a very important area, sort of identifying um, the, 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 the forms of distress that we feel around our spirituality that cause the most long-term damage and the most opportunity for, uh, like more research and development. Um, also in the area would be Daryl Ventongren's research. I think you've talked to him. He talks a lot about what my favorite term ever, the existential chasm. So sort of like examining what's happened when people leave the church, examining what's happened when people deconvert and have lost the meaning-making framework that they, they had always had, or looking at the, the existential distress that people feel if they've never had a spiritual community that was uh, formative for them. So that research, I think, is... Uh, that psychology research, psychology of religion research, is, is one, one of the main areas that I think that we need to really be looking at. Um, I'm sorry, I have some notes here. Uh, then there's the philosophy component. I won't get too much into that if you don't want to, but basically... Like Boring epi- I know, philosophy. Exactly. So epistemology and metaphysics. If people are having uh, experiences of intense spiritual connection with God, ultimate reality, other people, what is happening there? How do we... So epistemology, how do we know what we know? How do we know what's real? How do we know what's true? Um, how do we know how to weight different experiences in our assessment of our overall spiritual lives? Uh, and then, uh, yeah, metaphysics, like what sort of, and I would, I would put theology in here as well. Like what sort of picture of God and reality in the universe best fits with the scientific research and lived experience. So there's where you start getting into process thought, panentheism, models of God that are better able to, uh, incorporate and integrate uh, not only cutting-edge research, but also what we're actually experiencing. And that's three. Yeah, that's three. And then, well, theology would be the fourth, but we can just group that into philosophy for now. Okay. I don't know how the theologians are going to feel. Not like it. <laughs> I want to go back to the first one, stuff. Sure. Okay, so stuff. you talked about the, you know, your ADHD meds, right? And, yeah. and, and what that's doing for your brain and, and the sort of the current... It's interesting. Very few people know this. Even people who have been diagnosed with ADHD, their doctors don't often explain this to them. Um, so I often will talk with clients about it. But the, briefly, the current understanding of ADHD is we think about the hyperactivity, right? So we think these must be people who are, are like overly stimulated. And that's why they are bouncing off the walls, especially young children. But that's actually not what is, what is believed to be going on. They're actually understimulated, which is why... Anything, squirrel, sound, flashing light can get their attention. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you think about an old turn dial radio, you're right, on, you're right on that station. It's coming in clear. You're getting a lot of signal. You're not getting a lot of noise. ADHD is like being just a click off of that. You can hear the music that's playing, but it's kind of fuzzy because the signal to noise ratio is lower. And what Adderall and Ritalin and these stimulants do is they pump up that signal so that you can focus on things the way someone who's neurotypical can focus on things. And so that made me think of caffeine. One of the things that I've found is that if I'm going to do some prayer time or if I'm going to be reading something that really I need to chew on, Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes that's related to faith, 
if I do that around the time I'm having caffeine, mm-hmm. that's a good way to time the caffeine I'm going to be drinking anyway that day because I have to. Um, but like putting it in an intentional spot, right. that might be the most boring spiritual technology that can exist mm-hmm. is when to, when to pour your mug of coffee. But that's a spiritual right. technology too because I'm trying to sort of maximize that 20 minutes I'm going to spend or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. The intentionality here is the key, right? So I do the same thing with my ADHD meds. Like I'm very intentional about when I use them in consultation with my doctor, of course. Um, I'm very intentional about when I use them because like, I know that there are times in my life when I need to be immersed and absorbed in what I'm doing. And I think what is the most powerful thing about caffeine or sleep or whatever it is that we're, that we're talking about um, it's like, it makes you feel normal. Like I have suddenly had for the last like several months, this like realization that like, oh, this is how other people function. Like people can focus on a lecture. They can sit down and actually write two pages and it's not like pulling teeth for them. Like this is, this is like, this is, I, you just feel like you're, you're, you're sort of normal and present and immersed and absorbed in an appropriate way in what you're doing. Um, but you have to be like the intentionality part is, is crucial. Um, and it, it, uh, yeah, it's not only around like medication it is around, but it's, it's around sleep. It's around exercise, um, exposure to nature experiences. I think it's like this real, I mean, I have a lot of critiques about mindfulness literature, but there is something about being mindful about what you're doing and when you're doing it and who you're doing it with that it probably is the foundation of all spiritual technology discussions is like the, like the first step is always to be like, okay, what am I doing here? What are my goals? What are my hopes? What are my, what are my weaknesses? Like, where could this go off the rails? Like, I think that's very important, especially if we're talking about psychedelics or um, any brain medication as well. Like just being completely honest with yourself about, um, your frailties, your fragilities, the thing, your brokenness, like the things you need to watch out for and the things that you're really quite good at uh, and, and, and just kind of taking it, accepting it as a whole and finding the areas in your life where you can actually make some headway in your spirituality, your health, whatever. It's going to play that for my clients. Um, <laughs> I want to bring in theology a little bit because I think that this has a natural tension with a pretty widespread assumption in, certainly in Christianity, and I'm sure in other faiths as well, that, well, okay, what you're talking about, these sort of mundane things, uh, getting enough sleep, Mm -hmm. you know, exercising, nutrition, having a regular schedule, that's not what's going on with God. Like, God is doing the Asbury revival. God is sort of doing supernatural things that are not you know, in, in the sort of truly naive version have nothing to do with those things. And, and we might say something like God can show up whenever God wants to show up. And that might be true in some sense. Um, but like, when did you start to feel okay, sort of taking the other side of that tension in terms of, no, I, I do think actually that whatever God is doing, it is profoundly related to the natural, to mm-hmm. the mundane, to the everyday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, um, Anyone who's heard me talk theology in the past knows that I totally reject the kind of classical, philosophical, theistic version of God, where God's over here and the world's over here, and sometimes God steps in, and other times God doesn't, and doesn't that suck? Or isn't that great? Okay, just listen for the thunder. 
No. Um, no lightning bolts. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my, my thought has... Or, my thought on this has evolved um, over time in kind of tandem with my academic career as well. I mean, you know that my start was sort of in divine action stuff. So my books on divine action sort of trying to tease apart, like, what are we even talking about here when we say that God acts in the human mind? And that started like 10 years ago for me and it's sort of evolved. So I started working on divine action stuff. But I very quickly realized that the sort of like that core dichotomy, like the God over here, world over here, that dynamic was at kind of the root of a lot of the issues that we struggle with in church and and, in spiritual evangelical circles. Um, There's this sort of there's this sort of impulse in us often to sort of seek seek God in this transcendent supernatural space. Um, and discount the, uh, the, the, the stuff of life, the physicality of our world um, in that process. And so, I mean, this is actually one, I mean, we always like to sort of, um, you know, make fun of uh, academics for not being in touch with reality. But this is one area actually where my kind of my academic work really had a deep impact on my life. Um, because as soon as I saw the options out there, like as soon as I saw that there are other models of God out there than the one I'd grown up with, um, it was like opening a million doors uh, in which, through which I could enter these spaces of applying different concepts of God to lived experience in my relationships and my body and sexuality and parenting and all these very specific uh, domains. Um, so it was like the conceptual stuff gave me the framework and the resources then to tie in, um, to tie to tie that in with like the very real small decisions I was making. To stick with theology, I think there's also a kind of a particular Protestant problem here. Yeah. Right, I'm thinking of two examples in the more Catholic and Orthodox tradition, um, besides cathedrals, which we already talked about. Uh, the first is the the orders, so monks and nuns, mm-hmm. and and what they will often do is they plan their day. And I'm thinking about the, uh, praying the hours or setting up a rule of life in the Benedictine fashion. Like you don't do that if you don't think that your daily pattern has some bearing on your relationship with God, if you are a monk mm-hmm. and your full-time job is your faith and, you're, and you rigidly set your... Right, so that tells you something. The other one is um, I love going to the Compline service at St. Mark's Cathedral here in Seattle. And I was in there maybe last month or two months ago and laying, laying down listening. And it's... Um, it's a big kind of stone cathedral. It's not as big as the St. James, which is the Catholic one, but it's pretty big. And, and the ceilings are probably twice as high as this. It's about maybe five times as big as this room. Holds maybe, I don't know, 600 people or something. And the choir is over in one corner, this men's choir. They've been doing it for decades and decades. And they sing, uh, it's a sung liturgy. And so it includes usually these like classical pieces, which are gobsmackingly beautiful, but the thing that I was thinking about is it's bouncing off every corner of this stone building. And you know what I thought? I thought cave paintings. I mean, I thought 30,000 years ago, the best evidence we have mm-hmm. is that the most important or some of the most important rituals, maybe what we might call religious or proto-religious rituals in early humans, this stuff is taking place in caves mm-hmm. where sound bounces off. And if you've ever been heard any music in one of these spaces, you know how naturally beautiful that is. And, and it 
it is amplifying whatever it is that's happening. So essentially, spiritual technology has been with us since, like, it's the earliest data we have about anything human culture-wise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so, so, like, what I love the most about the cave example is that I would bet all of my money, which is not much, that, like, Academic. if you, <laughs> that if you were to go back to the first kind of transcendent religious experience that somebody had in a cave, um, they didn't go into that cave looking for a transcendent experience. They probably, it just happened, and then they recognized it, they tuned into it, and then they explored it further, right? And I've actually been thinking about exactly this thing in relationship to the Asbury thing, because when you think about the way that revivals have happened, um, it's often like something small happens, or someone feels something, or something is said, there's a certain community, there's a certain experience that seemed, that just sort of, it's like it's a normal it's a normal event that suddenly takes on a larger importance, right? And how does that happen, right? People go into in, in the Asbury case, they go into the church. The, the, so Asbury Church now or the chapel is now the cave. That's that's the analogy here. Okay, um, got it. Got it. All right. <laughs> okay. So they go in normal chapel service, and probably some there's probably like a chapel like policemen there taking like the register and making sure they're wow, all there four times a week. shade at the conservative I don't know. schools. I went to Spring Arbor. This is what you okay, right. only miss like three Checking a semester or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. right. So like normal chapel service, half the people don't want to be there. Then suddenly, oh, hi, Soren. Hi, Soren. Hi, Soren people. heard us talking about caves. Hey, buddy. Oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> the podcast listeners are now like, what? Oh, come on. <laughs> come here. Do you want to say hi, bub? Yeah, I can hold you for a minute. I haven't seen you in ages. Hey, Soren. Sorry, we're having a personal moment here. (laughs) This is an okay, this is an okay uh, interruption. Hey, Bubba, can you say hi to everybody? Hi. (laughs) Did you come with Mama? Yeah. 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 That's a a microphone, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to have you and Baby Piglet go back with Mama in the back, Okay. Because I'm gonna, I gotta keep talking. You know how sometimes we're in the car and you say, "Dada, is that you talking?" Because I'm listening back to the podcast. Healthy egos. Healthy egos. True confession time. I'm usually listening for like what Sarah said or you know whatever. It's not me. Okay, go back to Mama. Okay, thank you, Bub. Thank you for coming up. Now my mom brain's turned on. Okay. Yeah. Are um, you going to be able to switch yeah, back? Okay. Here we go. All right. So Asbury, right? So cave paintings, as, Asbury. Um, right. So I would bet a lot of money that when people went into that Asbury chapel service that first day, um, they weren't expecting anything out of the ordinary. Probably yeah. just a normal chapel service. Maybe one extra song was sung at the end of a particularly powerful message during that chapel service. I don't know. Somebody probably knows the answer to this. But it would have been a bunch of micro moments, right, that added up to something, right? So there would have been an identifiable sort of chain of events where, say, there were a lot of people in the service that day, and maybe there's a powerful speaker, and then, like, a couple of powerful hymns came on, and then, you know, somebody made some sort of suggestion, like, hmm, maybe we could stay for an extra 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden there's a switch that happens where people feel like they've suddenly become part of something larger than themselves, Somebody maybe decides to voice that experience, like, ah, 
wow, we stayed here an extra half hour singing. Maybe we should stay longer. Maybe that there's something bigger happening here and, and, and the spirit is moving in this way and we can participate in that. And then they become active participants in that and they drive it forward. They cancel classes for the rest of the day or the week or the month. They call in other worship leaders or they you know, start uh, tweeting it and, and, and posting it on Facebook or whatever. And like they become active participants in something that they feel like has, they have just discovered Um, And I suspect that most temporally discrete moments of transcendence, at least communal transcendence uh, in human history, have been something like that. A combination of uh, the surprised by joy element that C.S. Lewis talked about, sort of like Mm. this this sort of slight surprise that you are feeling taken out of yourself in some way or caught up in something, combined with uh, a, a whole series of very natural empirically identifiable uh, causal events, steps that then carry that initial moment of discovery or transcendence forward and create something larger out of it, right? So person goes into the uh, the cave in France or wherever it is, they f- hear these echoes on the cave walls and it, they feel something. They're like, wow, something's happening here. They then become an active participant in that and they bring their friends back. They start doing the painting of the hand uh, or the painting of the bison. Yeah, whatever. we're going to mark. I mean, we don't know why, but imagine something like we're going to mark this place yes, exactly. as the place where this happened exactly, or something exactly. like that. Yeah. It's almost like people are just hungry for the invitation to participate in something larger than themselves. Like they're looking it's for It's almost trans- as if we It's are. almost as if. They're looking for transcendence. It's almost as if we would like to participate yeah, yeah, yeah. in something greater than ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are looking, they are searching for transcendence and at the first opportunity of that mm-hmm. sort of being caught up in something People run with it. And I think that's great. A lot of people hate it when I say this sort of stuff because they want to believe it's a supernatural intervention by like a, an omnipotent God. Um, I think I probably have Tom Ward on my side here. Uh, <laughs> they want to believe there's something super, super supernaturalistic about it uh, and that there's no human participation involved because then it feels real, then it feels more important. I don't think that's necessarily what has happened throughout human history. And if you have the right version of God, um, I don't think it's threatening to recognize that we have always been active participants in these uh, communal moments or personal moments of transcendence. Yeah, I wrote down the word identifiable. I'll add empirical to that little list of kind of words that jumped out at me. I think that my concern is that we can be too smug. I'm not accusing you of being smug, but I do this too, where I think we can get too confident that we could explain mm-hmm. all of these mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Are you are you saying that you, like if someone gave you a nice, re, uh, like a a printout of all the little micro events that you could identify them? Or are you saying that like in theory, someone would be able to someday identify these maybe with more research or. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I personally could sit down and give you a comprehensive explanation of every spiritually intense transcendent moment that people have ever experienced throughout history. I do think that in principle that could occur. Um, but again, that goes back to sort of my theistic naturalism, my, Sort of firm, which means what? My firm commitment that uh, the natural is always more than the natural. There's no separation. There's no such thing as natural and supernatural. Whatever your version of ultimate reality is, it has to be an integration of those two things. Um, I don't think it makes sense to talk about the natural world, the scientific world, about talking about ultimate reality as a whole. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to talk about transcendent God, ultimate reality, without talking about the natural world. It's all part of the same picture for me. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, so I'm not threatened by that. Um, and I'm also not, I mean, you talk about smugness, and I think that's an important thing when we talk about things like Asbury or psychedelics, actually. The same criticism comes up in both of these conversations. People want to say, we know how this happened, therefore it's not real. And I completely reject that. To explain something, to describe something is not to fully explain it or explain it away. Right. Or to even identify the wishful thinking or the hopefulness or the expectation that people bring to these experiences. Just because people have participated in manufacturing, in scare quotes, uh, an experience does not mean that it's not real. Whether Mm -hmm. you're taking uh, psilocybin or you're participating in the ongoing Asbury revival, or I'm just picking on Asbury right now. Um, like people want to say, oh, we know what's going on here. We've seen this before, or we know that you're just, you know, t- you know, dropping acid or whatever. We know that this is not an authentic religious experience. Uh, and I don't think that's fair. I mean, it's funny because I think Danny and I, uh, I think we texted a little bit about this, but with Asbury in particular, what I found more interesting than the, whatever was actually happening at Asbury was sort of the responses to that. Um, like I had far more interesting conversations around the different reactions that key thought leaders in different populations were having to what's happening at Asbury yeah. than I, like far more interesting than anything about actual Asbury itself. Um, so it's like, I think I described this to you. Like, it feels like there was this bell curve around the reactions to this re- revival at a conservative evangelical school. Like on one hand, you had the very conservative evangelicals who were delighted to say, look, God is doing a new thing. God is acting in this very supernatural way that we had nothing to do with it. And we are just responding to this supernatural thing that God has done. Yay. Go God. Let's do more. Then you had this huge spike in the middle of this bell curve where people hated it. Now you had some people who were still in the evangelical world, like hating it and saying either God doesn't work like that anymore, or we have to be careful that we don't let our emotions like dictate our reason and all of this stuff. Or, and this is probably where most of my people were falling, falling. You had just a sustained like disgust and critique of evangelicalism more broadly. And see, and, and I would include in this as well, most academic theologians, yeah. right? So saying like, no, we need to be responsible and reasonable and this is not what we should be encouraging um, and it's not good theology. And- or people will engage in these things. They will get confirmed in their belief system right. and we know that those are the people killing the planet and the poor right. and voting for bad Trump, theology, so it's bad. Bad theology, Three why steps are we, back, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, why are and we encouraging this individualistic... Like God or a spiritual experience could maybe dislodge some of those things in them, right? Like yeah. just assuming, well, this is all part of the evil machinery. Right, right. So we have to be against it. Right, right. So you have like liberal progressive ex-evangelicals or people broadly within Christianity, but who have like, who are just like not really into the conservative fundamentalist version anymore. And then you have, yeah, so liberal, progressive, ex-evangelicals. And then you had a lot of people who had just been wounded by those sorts of experiences, right? Like a ton of religious trauma coming out of that kind of stuff in the past where those sorts of, uh, like the leaders involved in those sorts of experiences or the communities involved in those experiences have led to really harmful messages being conveyed and really uh, absorbed by people. And uh, there's a sort of like spiritual authority that can accrue around revival type events. And that can be extremely dangerous and harmful. Uh, so then, you, so yeah, huge bell curve where people are just like, ugh, triggered, gross, not real theology, all of that. And then you get to the bottom end of that bell curve, which is kind of where I find myself. And you have people who are just so far out of that evangelical world that 
they have, they're kind of not disinterested, but they're kind of like observing it from afar. Or you have people who I would say are like the more not traditionally theistic types who have more expansive versions of God, like panentheism or process thought or whatever, um, who take it more seriously. And I would put myself in that category. Do I agree with Asbury's theology? Absolutely not. However, I do sort of my, uh, my metaphysic, my theological framework dictates that I take seriously the spiritual importance of all such experiences, right? Whether or not I agree with the content. Um, and do I think something was happening at Asbury? Yeah, perhaps. But it's not like supernatural God stepping in and doing the thing. It's more like we are in a spirit-infused world. Everything that we consider to be natural is caught up in ultimate reality. I believe that ultimate reality is ultimately good and loving. And therefore, people are drawn to experiences that enhance those qualities in them and enhance their sort of affective apprehension of those characteristics of reality. Um, my favorite article that came out of that whole episode was Nadia Boltz-Weber's. Yeah, Nadia, you would have expected to be the most critical of an Asbury revival. She was not. She said something to the effect of, can we not just let them have their fucking moment of joy? Like, let's just let them have their joy. Why do we have to be the buzzkill? Like, let them do their thing. They're going to grow, they'll develop, but now they're going to have this like moment in their life that felt incredibly intimate and powerful. Mm-hmm. Let them have that. So, cave paintings. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. That was good. That was a nice wraparound. Um, I'm very glad I introduced cave paintings to the rubric there. Um, well, I think that is kind of a nice way to bridge two psychedelics. Okay. I, I want to say one thing to kind of fill that middle space there. I think that what some of the critics of Asbury, and by the way, if you, if I should have said this earlier, but if you did miss it, there was this kind of weeks long, I think, sort of 24 7 worship experience in Kentucky at Asbury College. And they eventually stopped it for sort of like safety and they had to get school back going and these people are paying for a degree <laughs> reasons. Um, but it was like, you know, it, it hearkened back to things like the Toronto blessing of, is that the nineties or eighties? Nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the Zusa revival um, that's kicked off basically the charismatic movement. So and, and we have these things where like Bethel in, in Redding, California has had some of these uh, events as well. So that's what we were talking about. Um, you know, t- to bring it back to this idea of f- being threatened and really this sharp division between um, what you're describing, which is the worldview I also hold, that, like, uh, everything is natural, but it's more than natural. And, by the way, just in that I would say, like, we don't really know. We don't know what dark matter is. We don't know what dark energy is. There are, might be things that would fit under my category of natural that nonetheless we don't have good explanations for. I'm not saying that we know yeah. and can talk with full certainty about everything that is natural. Uh, but rather than like a, well, there's the mundane world and then God sort of hmm. supernaturally steps in and does things and then steps out. And, and those are like of a fundamentally different kind than the other experiences. I think that what some of the critiques of Asbury are doing are assuming those rules mm-hmm. and going, well, then, well, that can't be one of those supernatural events because it's going to lead to cynicism down the road when these people's lives aren't changed or it's going to, it's going to increase the, the Trump army recruits or something. So that can't be. But what you're saying is like, I think that this perspective actually sort of softens the lines on that and That's says right. they're having a natural experience. It's transcendent. 
Yes. If God exists and is loving like we think, then God is probably a part of that. Mm -hmm. But because we're not giving it the gold star of supernatural approval, Mm -hmm. we don't have to take it, we don't have to sort of take it whole cloth. That's exactly right. We can sort of separate out what we think is probably good, what we think would be potentially harmful. Myron, I know you mentioned in our group chat that you knew people who were involved at, at the Toronto Blessing and most of them are atheists now or something like that. In in the broader movement, right? Like many of them did mm-hmm. not hold on to their faith. It wasn't enough to sort of like, mm-hmm. and so that's reality. And and I like that kind of more gray scale, mm-hmm. you know, integrated thinking. So Myron's basically saying that, because um, this is recorded for later, that also friends of yours look back with sort of a, a mixed view on things. Some of them feel very much like they're manipulated. Some of them can also appreciate some of the sweetness. And there was a lot of spiritual spiritual technology um, on purpose work going on to sort of create the thing for that Toronto blessing, which then of course then takes on this big life of its own, much like Asbury has done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I say this as someone who is deeply aware of how harmful such experiences can be. I don't think we've ever talked about this in the big five, but like I went multiple times to Toronto. Um, the leaders, there are several leaders, uh, I shouldn't name names, but the the key leaders at the time I'm talking about uh, in the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, which is the church where the Toronto Blessing happened. Um, I know. I'm only, sorry, Toronto Airport Christian it's Fellowship? It's called Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. It's like a big church that's next to the airport. Whatever. I mean, I figured, but like <laughs> giving, giving, giving fellowship of Christian athletes a run for its money yeah. on most uh, like specific Christian ministry names. Yeah. Do you do you want fellowship? Are you near the Toronto airport? Yeah, yeah. We got the church for you. <laughs> no, it was. It was quite a niche. Let, let's say that. Yeah. But not only did I like know, I knew these leaders personally. They actually came over and stayed with us and my family in Bangladesh. Like we mm. like I know them personally. In fact, a couple of them went to Asbury. I saw this on their Facebook post. Yeah. Um, Anyway, and I, you know, I have really mixed feelings about those larger kind of more nationwide uh, revivals. I mean, I think I've told you this, Stan, before, maybe not, but um, uh, some local pastors in the place where I grew up uh, were also very heavily involved in the Toronto Blessing. When my mom was dying, um, when I was 16, we were in Michigan, and these these pastors, these couple, it's a pastor couple, um, dear, dear friends of my family, my entire life. So I, I love them. I do. Um, but when my mom was dying, they would come over to our house every day and pray over my mom and said, you cannot, you cannot for one second believe that you're going to die or else God will not heal you. Essentially, essentially is what was like, God will heal you. Oh my gosh. You have to believe. Now, the effect of this was that my mom would not acknowledge that she was dying. So not once did they did my parents, because of this theology, not once did my parents actually discuss her death with my brother and I, which means that we had no final conversations. Oh. We had no preparation. Until the day she died, uh, my family was telling us that it might not be cancer. And it was definitely fucking cancer. <laughs> um, and uh, after she died, this is the kicker, after she died, uh, the day that she died, the morning she died, this pastor couple were at the church. I hope they never listened to this podcast episode. <laughs> um, I would be mortified, but whatever. Um, they, uh, this pastor couple was at the hospital. My mom died at like 7.30 in the morning. 
um, I was sitting in the hallway outside in like this window seat thing, kind of curled up in the fetal position in shock. And one of them came up to me and said, you know, we really believe that God is going to raise your mom from the dead. And, and I just, it was like this, my heart broke all over again, you know, and then you have this like 0.1% of your 16 year old mind. That's like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, and I look back on that and now God, I never cry in podcasts, but here I go. Um, I look back on that as being like, if I could have, if I could change one thing in my life, it would be to have three months of important conversations with my mother, especially now that I have a two-year-old. Um, if I could, if I, if I was dying, you better believe that I would have, I would be creating videos. I would be writing her letters. I would be having all the important conversations about what I want her to be and experience in life. And the fact that this shitty theology can be so powerful as to keep a mother from preparing her child for life without her is just mind-boggling to me. So I want to just like emphasize, I feel like sometimes I can come across as a little too gung-ho about just accepting spiritual uh, technologies and, and, and just like letting, you know, letting a fl- thousand flowers bloom but I am extremely painfully aware of how this can go very badly wrong. Um, so I am enthusiastic about these things. I truly am. And we should go on to psychedelics, but I am very enthusiastic about these things. But I am also the most, uh, I am also the most, I take the most seriously of, of anybody in these circles, I hope, um, how careful we need to be with them and how sensitive to the actual lived experiences of the person in front of us that we need to be whenever we are talking about these things. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Without going too far into it, in some of the trauma work that I do, there is this thing called the just world hypothesis. And for a lot of um, clients, you got to break through that. It's the idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people not in some sort of probabilistic way, but in a kind of an ironclad way. And so therefore, I had a traumatic experience. I must have done something to deserve it. I think of Jesus was this man born blind because of something he or his parents did know, right? So like those, those uh, rigid formulaic theologies, um, they have so much psychological power, I think, because of their rigidity, mm-hmm. because they take out, so much ambiguity. That's right, yeah. That as long as you're not on the wrong end of it, mm-hmm. like for instance, if you're a prosperity gospel person and you're prosperous, mm-hmm. you got it fucking made, man. Checks out. <laughs> you're good. God wants you to have all that, you know? But if you lose your job, what did you do to sin, right? It can't just be that like all the tech banks folded. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's something you did, right? And so there... It's again back to that supernatural versus an integrated natural perspective of like these things, they happen in the world and they have consequences and we have some agency. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we can do with that agency is we can take MDMA, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How's that? (laughs) Was that That, a good transition? Five star segue. (laughs) Okay. But there has been a lot of research and, you know, we have talked about some other research, but I do want to make sure we talk about sort yeah. of, you know, this is the theme of today is what's next. And um, 
you know, this is not something that like every American is mm -hmm. concerned about. It's maybe higher percentage of Redditors and mm -hmm. I don't know, it's Joe Rogan and Sam Harris listeners, but I'm also quite interested in it. Uh, and I'll place myself in that camp. What, what is the newest research yeah. saying? And maybe especially around sort of religious and spiritual questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, so I am entirely enthusiastic about the latest phase of psychedelic research. So we had like the first wave in the sixties, which was, uh, problematic. And then for like the last 15 years or so, there's been sort of this renaissance of research. And that first was uh, occurring at Johns Hopkins around psilocybin. And where we are now is almost like a, almost like a third wave where there's uh, uh, it's, there's an explosion. There's an explosion of research centers around the world. Now, everybody, all like most credible researchers are at least open to research in this area, uh, looking at um, effects for uh, mental mental illness, uh, effects on mental illness, uh, from everything from PTSD to addiction to um, depression, smoking cessation, all this stuff. So that we, we, we know that this is happening. Uh, and we also know from Johns Hopkins and Roland Griffiths and his team that uh, spiritual experiences, uh, mystical experiences on psychedelics seem to be the key. There is debate about this, but they seem to be the key to the most transformative effects of psychedelics. So that's often called mechanism of change research, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. you know a drug works, but then you need to do a bunch of research to sort of control for various factors of error. Well, what is working about it? Mm -hmm. And so that's where you end up with like, well, we think that what SSRI is doing is they're, yep. they're changing this thing and you, you kind of, so that's they right. think or a plausible yes. answer is that something about the spiritual mystical right. experience is part of the mechanism of change. This makes psychiatrists really uncomfortable because for every other mechanism of change out there, it's something neurochemical. You can look at it on, uh, you can look, you can see on a computer screen what's happening. Uh, with psychedelics, it's different because it's qualitative. It's qualitative. I mean, now I'm sure that there are neurocorrelates to that, but it is the qualitative experience of connection or oneness or ego dissolution or whatever encounter with a transformative love that seems to be the thing that changes people's lives. Now, that is interesting, makes people uncomfortable, including philosophers. Um, but it doesn't, you know who it doesn't make uncomfortable probably is therapists who take a biopsychosocial spiritual approach. That's right. And yeah. who regularly ask about their clients' faith. Yeah. And, and the support of that community and what that does, because those of us who do ask those questions know yeah. that's also not very quantifiable other mm -hmm. than some sort of self-report mm -hmm. one to 10 number someone can give you, but it's a thing that happens in fleshed in community yeah. with other people. And we know that it really matters to mm -hmm. people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the research, the, the debates around psychedelics research are occurring alongside uh, very interesting uh, debates about the over-psychiatrization of mental health and illness, right? So for decades now, psychiatrists and neuros neuroscientists have had sort of, they've been like the king of the mountain when it comes to talking about mental health. Like, oh, don't you dare say that um, this particular mental struggle or challenge or illness is not like a medical illness to be treated with a medication. You know, that was kind of like what needed to occur for the last few decades in order to get people comfortable taking and talking about taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. But now there's been like this real, there's a, re a recent, like a real pushback from feminists and ethicists about like not wanting to make everything or kind of wanting to expand our, uh, expand the conversation, expand our constructs and understanding of what mental health and mental illness mean and just wanting to be careful of not allowing like an EEG machine to dictate 
how we think about and treat um, struggle. Uh, and anyway, that's a whole other side conversation. See me later if you want to hear more about that. But um, I think, so, so what are the, what, one of the most interesting things to me right now is how you have um, a more fine-grained analysis happening between uh, about different types of psychedelics, right? So you have psilocybin and LSD. Those are the ones that have been probably the most well-researched. I think DMT research is going to be the next phase uh, for a variety of reasons, including methodological, because DMT is very short. So an LSD experience, it's a whole day. Psychedelic or um, psilocybin, it's, you're still looking at like four to six hours. With DMT, it's like that shit happens in five to 10 minutes and then you're done in like an hour. It's like, it's very short. And DMT is particularly interesting because it seems to have a, a higher percentage of people on DMT than other psychedelics seem to have an overwhelmingly positive transformative encounter with, of love, uh, of love and, 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 and just sort of connectedness to that love. Um, it was, it was, there was a recent, I think this actually came out of Johns Hopkins. There was an, I think a Roland Griffith study, uh, that suggested that like the vast majority of people who took, um, who did DMT in this, in this trial, um, the vast majority reported, uh, like, a, a, a mystical transformative, like, on, like inarticulable encounter with, with ultimate reality and love. Most of these, I think it was something insane, like 90% of those people, uh, were atheists, which seems statistically unlikely. So maybe it's less than that, but it was like most of those people were atheists. And it didn't mean that their atheism changed. It didn't necessarily mean that their, that their the metaphysics were going to change because of the experience, but it certainly probably added some color to their atheism. Um, Technicolor atheists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. They so, burst out with a new coat, you yeah. know, wearing so all around a dream coat. My, my suspicion is that the future research on spirituality and psychedelics is going to look focus more closely on DMT, I think, because it's more, it's more um, focused, right? So psilocybin and LSD, you get, there's a lot more noise, perhaps. So if you're really aiming for the, the, spiritual, the spiritual component, I do think that DMT might be the future. And then I would just say that like, um, the, mo- the other most interesting thing about psychedelics research right now is that there is a growing awareness of the needs for theologians, therapists, philosophers, in the study design and implementation of this stuff and in the interpretation of the results. So we've kind of relegated it to the realm of neuroscientists for decades now. And you're seeing all these like grants and research centers start to pull in the people who are actually really skilled at talking about what's happening and yeah. how we know it's true and the, the therapeutic dimension of things that neuroscientists are not equipped to handle. Um, and so you have like a whole, it's almost like a whole cottage industry of psychedelic therapists. You can actually get trained in psychedelic therapy now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's the other component of the research is like the recognition that this is not a single, this is not the effort of a single discipline. This is not just neuroscience. This is a, an effort that if it is going to be successful, we'll have to pull in the brightest, most expansive minds from a variety of disciplines. So I'm really interested in the therapeutic side, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on that here because it's not what I want to talk with you about. Um, but if you guys don't know, like ketamine therapy has been approved in many U.S. states now for many years. Mm-hmm. And is you know people are developing very careful methodologies around how to do that. And um, some research seems to indicate that what it kind of does is it kind of it breaks people free mm-hmm. to sort of see things from a different perspective for a time, which if you're dealing with really heavy depression, for instance, 
getting another perspective on that can be very helpful. Um, and some of these psychedelic experiences, many of them across many of the substances, they tend to have a more lasting effect yeah. than drinking or using cannabis or something like well, that. They, they certainly they, do. They yeah. stick around yeah. longer. And so if something, if for instance, it would hold up to reason that if what you're wanting for your client is for them to like get a new perspective that doesn't vanish mm -hmm. tomorrow, that they can remember that thing and kind of hold on to it, then there might be really good therapeutic promise and that might be a mechanism. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of looking at the therapists and making sure I'm not like, I'm, no one's, I'm not really missing right. this No, up. no, I can, yeah. So this is actually, this is true in ketamine. It's also true across the other uh, psychedelics as well. Um, it, maybe even particularly MDMA, like MDMA uh, is good for this. Um, because on MDMA, you're pretty much lucid the entire time. You're not like high in the way that you are with the other ones. Um, and MDMA is uh, great. Uh, because it gives you a direct experience of yourself as yourself. So not high self, you know, you really do feel lucid. So it gives you an experience of yourself as yourself, but different, right? So, and this is the same thing with the lasting insights from psilocybin and LSD and uh, DMT, um, is that psychedelics give you, it's not like being on weed where you're like, oh, I have a brilliant thought. And it turns out that is not a brilliant thought. Um <laughs> It's more check that, back later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more like um, it's it's just different. You you have an you have an experience of yourself and you an experience of yourself that is of a different quality and tone. Usually, a more settled and joyful and kind of peaceful quality um, than you do in the rest of your life. You sort of see what you have access to. Uh, as yourself, um, and that can be powerful because then once you have an, once you have proof of concept and you know you can experience the world differently, then there are a million different ways to approach that same experience of yourself being okay and the world being good. Um, Accessing that space, yeah, basically. Yeah, so many people. Yeah. I mean, Sam Harris has said over and over that for him, psychedelics were the gateway drug to meditation. You know, there's right. there's some real truth to that. So, you, psychedelics therapeutically they give you uh, access to an experience of yourself in the world that felt uh, unattainable for you, and then you can go about approaching that in whatever way you want, and that lasts after the session. We've I've got one more question for you, and we've got an extra maybe five to ten minutes because. Um, the lunch folks hit some traffic. So we can take a, maybe one or two audience questions. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to think about that. Turning it back to theology and going back to this, you know, to describe is not to explain away. And yet that can be, for me, it's very anxiety inducing. Here, here's my big worry about all this stuff. Oh, by the way, if MDMA keeps you lucid, how do you explain Burning Man? Just well, kidding. there's okay. more, there's it's more not happening at Burning Man. Man. Okay, all right. I was like, do I do Burning Man? Do I do Labor Dave? That's kind of a local thing where Dave Matthews plays a whole weekend at the Gorge. Okay, all right. Over Labor Day weekend. All right. So my big worry is like, yeah, if people take DMT or other things like this, they have these occasional mountaintop experiences where they feel connected to divine consciousness, the ultimate being or whatever, well, that's like just because they've got DMT in their brain. And maybe if they have near-death experiences where they feel this intense sense of love and connection, it's just because DMT is released when your body thinks that you're dying. Or fill in any other chemical version of that for any sort of version of that. Um, 
And so even though I avowedly agree with you that it's a natural super, you know, it's all natural and it's all in there, there part of me gets nervous around this stuff that like, if I can, if I can manufacture it with a pill, even if I can also get there non-pharmacologically with meditation, is all of this just sort of the, the cocktails that my brain creates and, and how do I know that this connects to any sort of actual reality wherein there is justice that can flow like a river where mm-hmm. like all the gross inequities of this experience are actually made new in some meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, do, do yeah. you suffer from that doubt? Do you work with it? Like, how do you deal with that? This is another, this is like, this is another instance of theology actually being helpful. Shocker. Mm. Um, right. No, psychedelics don't do, psychedelics do not give you the theological scaffolding that you need in order to live your life well. Uh, that give you access to the thing your theology talks about. You might believe that God is love. You might struggle to apprehend that love for a million reasons that we can understand. Social, communal, trauma, psychological, mm-hmm. monkey mind, like whatever. Um, psychedelics give you direct access, or they can give one direct access to what they have, to, to experiences that resonate with truths or concepts that they have other reasons for believing. Yeah. Uh, psychedelics don't tend to be all that effective if you don't put in the work in set and setting and in interpretation. You have to connect those experiences to a larger picture of the world if they're going to have the effect that you need them to have. Um, I think that in the future, uh, as we move farther away from sort of the medical model of psychedelics, where it's basically only people with like PTSD that are using them, I think once we have a more robust infrastructure to deal with psychedelic therapy, um, we'll see more of this. There'll be more room for theologians to say, hey, you say you believe all these great things about God. Are you experiencing and living in such a way uh, that you know, your life reflects what you say that you believe or you cognitively do believe should be true about the world? Um, and especially for those of us who have had negative experiences of church or God, I mean, I've talked a lot about divine hiddenness in the past. So if you've ever struggled to feel God's presence and love as intimately and powerfully as you need or want to, psychedelics are really good for that. They give you, uh, access to what your best theology says is true about the world. Again, though, not an advertisement. (laughs) Jeez. <laughs> uh, the far right tortillas have a little something sprinkled on them. No, no, no. Okay. Um, does anybody have, we, yeah, we've got like maybe seven or eight minutes. And I'll repeat your question back in the mic. Yeah, yeah uh, a lot of overlap between spiritual practice and spiritual technology, as, as Nathaniel is sort of thinking about those terms and what he's hearing from you. Can you clarify yeah. What's overlap and what's distinct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. spiritual uh, practices in my framing are spiritual technologies. Uh, probably there are more spiritual technologies than would be captured by spiritual practices, but I think spiritual practices would just be like an intentional, curated, often tradition-bound form of spiritual um, spiritual technologies. Uh, and this is one of the things I always like to point out is that if you go to a church, you are doing spiritual technologies, (laughs) like you are 100% doing them. And the spiritual practice tradition is beautiful because you have sort of prescribed detailed, uh, practices that are available for anybody and everybody, um, that are like very, uh, like they've stood the test of time. 
uh, and they're often spiritual practices, especially if you're in a traditional religious community, can be the most low hanging fruit for people who are wanting to further develop their spiritual lives. Um, and um, I think and my hope is that going forward in the future, we will find ways of making existing religious spiritual practices accessible to those who have a hard time signing up to the content uh, because they are powerful, but sometimes they lose their power if we struggle to believe the sort of the doctrine associated with them. That's actually my one of my concerns about the utilization of these drugs is like we don't have hundreds of years of sort of accrued wisdom around them. Mm-hmm. But to your point, there are some people in some religious traditions, maybe more often indigenous or even forms of Christianity in Latin America, that do, because of different cultural reasons, have some accrued wisdom around using these things in a spiritual setting. And hopefully we can um, utilize that wisdom from those practitioners to, you know, for people who do want to use these in some sort of spiritual capacity, that it's not just recreational, like, you know, drop some shrooms and turn on Pineapple Express or whatever. Absolutely. Any other questions? I saw some other hands. Yeah. Ah, what about having a bad right. trip, Sarah? Right. As right. you as you shove these people out just into the psychedelic netherworld, right. how are you gonna? How will you maintain responsibility for these negative experiences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're working with a responsible, so like the current scene is one in which it is more accessible for normal people to have psychedelic experiences than it ever has been before in a clinical setting. Right? There's so many trials going on. So, let's say that one does go to a uh, to a, a clinic or a research center where they are doing some sort of uh, study or trial, they will have all sorts of prep work that people have to do, and they will dis- explicitly discuss bad trips, how to avoid them, and how to reframe them. So there are two parts of this. One, real quick, set and setting. Like you got to put yourself in the right position, right? So um, you don't. I never would recommend like just doing LSD and going to a concert or something. Like I, like you really want to be intentional about it. You want to have us. That's how we explain Burning Man. Yes, exactly. Found exactly, it. exactly. Okay. You have to be careful. You have to recognize that you are a fragile human, um, and that there are a lot of ways that challenging material can come up in these in these trips, and you need to be careful. So you always should be. So like in the in the clinics, you will have someone sitting right there with you in the room the entire time. You will be prepared. You will have a set in a setting. So sort of like the the physical room that you're in will be very finely curated. The music that you're listening to will be very carefully chosen. You will have um, a set. So you will have a sort of a mindset. You will have an intention. You will be sort of framing your experience uh, in, a line, in, in such a way that it's aligned with your values and your goals. Um, you will be, uh, you will have like many sessions before you actually do it, kind of trying to prevent that. And then you will be, you will be, you would be um, primed and kind of walked through how to handle challenging material. So what they always say to you in these experiences Trust, let go, be open. People have what they describe as bad trips when they don't let themselves go. Um, they're trying to claw back some control as they find themselves going into this sort of trip space. And trust, let go, be open. If you see a not, if you if there's a if there's an open door in front of you, you go, you walk through it. That's sort of like the metaphor. Go where the trip takes you. Do not resist anything. It's only when you resist what's happening when you try and 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 um, wall yourself off from it, that the more challenging trips happen. 
So, and the most redemptive, beautiful part of all of this is that even when people do have challenging trips, and honestly, some of the most transformative trips are extremely challenging. Most people who have a psychedelic trip will say, that is the best thing that ever happened to me, and I never, ever want to do it again. It's like, it's very normal. They're not pleasure, they're, they're often not pleasant. Um, I think that's a kind of a real misconception. People think you're just having fun. They're really freaking hard because um, you're dealing with the most challenging material you've ever, you, you've ever dealt with before. Um, so challenging trips are not bad trips. And so the beautiful part about psychedelics is that they, um, it's like shaking your, it's like, it's, it's like your brain is a snow globe that's being shaken. So uh, shake the snow globe, your uh, neural connections have a lot of uh, flexibility and neuroplasticity in the, in the, not only during the trip, but in the days following. So you have a period of time after the trip to do the meaning-making work. So it's actually not just what, this is also another fallacy, it's not just what happens in the trip that is important, it's how you frame it, talk it out, write about it, and the hours and days following it, hopefully initially on that day of the trip, and then in the days and weeks and months following with a therapist or trusted friends. And that's where the meaning-making work happens. You can have what you might initially experience as a bad trip, and then you talk it out, you work through it in your sober mind, and you find ways... You find, you find 10 to 15 things in that supposedly bad trip that can totally change your life because of how you frame them and interpret them. And again, you have a window of opportunity after the experience when your brain is just more plastic. And so it sticks. So, I mean, this is, this is just, um, I hope it's a comfort to people to know that even if you do have a bad, like what you might call a bad trip, try reframing it as challenging. Um, and and uh, recognize that you do have agency and power in what that becomes for you going forward if you have set it up correctly so that you are su- surrounded by the right support system. Speaking of sober mind, I just feel like I have to add a little bit of downer, downer Dan here before we break for lunch, which is that less is known about psychedelics, but we know quite a bit about cannabis here. And for people with genetic predisposition to various mental illnesses, people who have schizophrenia in their family, people who have mood disorders like bipolar in their family, these experiences are known to trigger those disorders in people. And so there is a risk to the possible reward here. Um, And that you can, you know, marijuana is uh, strongly associated with psychosis in people who have that type of... um, that type of predisposition. I was just listening to a very, very thorough Huberman Lab episode, the Stanford neuroscientist, uh, about what's known about cannabis, for instance. And so there's that caution too. Uh, You're giving sort of an instrumental how to sort of get through a bad trip, but there might be some people for whom they're just wired in such a way that it's just going to end up being a, a tough experience and, oh, yeah. and I mean, not, that why... re- not that redemptive. That can happen too. Yeah, and they, they screen, they, they will, I mean, so if you go to, a, if you're in a study, like you will not be allowed to participate if you have certain t- sorts of mental okay. illness yeah. or in your family, not just you yourself, yeah, in your family. Your family. These, yeah. the, the screening process for these things is very rigor- rigorous. And you should do one. <laughs> Definitely do a screening. Don't go do recreational psychedelics um, at all. But like, if you um, just make just be careful around that. Like, take it very seriously. And these things affect people very differently. So I am someone like I have never done cannabis and not become the worst version of myself. <laughs> I wish that cannabis worked for me. It makes me anxious. It makes me. It just it makes me want to crawl out of my skin, and I want it to be over as soon as it started. Not my experience. Yeah. 
on other substances. So um, these things affect people very differently. Now, I wish that cannabis worked for me. It doesn't. I, I don't. I, 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 there's also some gender issues here. Have you seen the research on gender? How like women tend to have. Uh, fewer good experiences on cannabis than men. I have not. It has to do with like estrogen, actually. It's fascinating. Um, Okay. Uh, Another thing you could be careful about is your protein choice for your Chipotle burritos. Um, That was was an even worse transition. Uh, Sarah Lane Ritchie, thank you so much. Thanks.